Welcome to this Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly podcast, where Dr. Emily Wan and I are going to discuss genomics in COPD. My name is Claire Nolan. I'm a member of the Pulmonary Rehab Assembly Web Committee and a researcher from Harefield Hospital in the UK. Our guest on this podcast is Dr. Emily Wan, a medical doctor at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Veterans Affairs, Boston Healthcare System and Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Wan. Thank you for providing your expertise for this podcast. And I'm going to first start off by asking you to give a brief description of what genomics is and why it is so exciting. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, so what genomics is, is a fairly complex question, and it's something that keeps evolving right now. But um, I like to think of genomics as a scientific approach where we exhaustively look at all of the variants within a search space. Um, what it does, I guess the best way to understand genomics is to look at how we used to approach genetics, which was something that we used to call the candidate gene approach. In the old approach, we as researchers and scientists would say, I think I understand the pathology of a disease. I'll use COPD as an example because it's a disease I know well. Um, in COPD, we thought the balance between inflammation and anti-inflammation, oxidants and antioxidants contributed to the disease development. And based on that, we started looking at genes that we thought were involved in these processes. And sometimes we found associations and sometimes we didn't. But what the old candidate gene approach um, didn't let us do was it really boxed us into thinking in a certain way and it didn't let us find new genetic associations outside of our realm of suspicion, let's just say. So what genomics lets us do is we look at all of the variants in the genes and it really gives us the opportunity to find associations that we never would have suspected in the past. So that's the quote-unquote hypothesis-free approach that genomics really lets us uh, implement. Thank you very much. That's, I think, a very complex topic and area in a nutshell. <laughs> um, so we know that genomics originally started by looking exhaustively at genes and DNA, and I understand there are different types of omics. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, of course. So you're right. Um, genomics originally started by looking all at all of the genetic variants, um, within our DNA. And we've since taken that approach of looking at all of the variants, uh, and we've applied it to other areas. So, for example, gene expression, so looking at all of the variants within RNA. Uh, and then we expanded it even further, and we started looking at epigenetics, which are marks on DNA, such as DNA methylation or microRNAs. And then we expanded it further to look at metabolites, so metabolomics proteins, proteomics, uh, the real consistency in all of these omics approaches is really the ability, again, to really have the platforms to look at all the variations within these search spaces and the computing power to test for associations, literally to run three million linear models at the same time to look for associations. So we really expanded the role of uh, omics uh, into multiple domains at this point. That's really interesting. And you mentioned that there were many different types of omics. And from what 
human tissue do you obtain samples to analyse, for example, blood or saliva, and is it different for each type of genomics? Oh, that's a terrific question. So uh, for genetics, for the most part, somatic genetics um, aren't different from cells, from the various different tissues in the body, meaning um, there's some variation, of course, in the MHC regions, but uh, for many of the other omics, they are what we call tissue-specific. For example, your RNA expression patterns within your blood are different from the RNA expression patterns within your lungs. So um, it is important to consider what tissue you're looking at when you're looking at an omic study. So that being said, the vast majority of omic studies uh, being conducted in respiratory disease have been on blood, and the reason for this is because, A, most of the large studies collect blood and have blood available, so some of it was convenience, and B, because respiratory disease, well, lung tissue is actually very hard to access, uh, so there are tissue surrogates that we've been looking at. Um, there are certainly limited lung tissue samples that we've been able to use with omics, um, but we're looking at things like breath omics, um, exhaled breath. We're looking at nasal swabs. We're looking at buccal tissue, things that might be a little easier to access but may still give us information on the pathophysiology that's going on in the lungs. That's really interesting. and. Obviously, the tissue that you collect is from uh, people who are alive. Is there ever any work where you would take tissue from cadavers? Actually, yes. There actually is a collection of lung tissue um, where we do collect tissues from cadavers. Oftentimes, they are rejected organ donors, uh, victims of trauma. Um, and we do have a small collection of lung tissues that we look at. The other source of tissue is often lung resections. Now, the caveat with that is that uh, they're often resections from malignancy. So that changes uh, the profile of the tissue that you're looking at, of course, even if you look at something that's microscopically normal. So if I was interested in COPD, I could take some of the surrounding lung tissue from, let's say, a tumor resection, but we don't actually know if that tissue is a little bit different <laughs> on the microscopic level than, say, somebody without lung cancer in COPD. So it depends on the disease. Um, but yes, we cadaveric oh, tissues are hard to hard to work with <laughs> and collect. <laughs> Understandably, and I'm sure you have uh, issues with ethics and consent as well. Oh, absolutely. There's also the issue of tissue stability because um, oftentimes in order for, for a lot of these other omics like RNA, uh, the tissues need to be very fresh and frozen immediately. So depending, time of death actually matters <laughs> as far as the collection of the tissue. And you mentioned um, a little while ago about using big data sets and mm -hmm. having 3 million samples to analyze. That must be a huge task. Or is it just made really easy by fancy pieces of software? <laughs> so, yeah, so many of the genomics data sets have to be very large. Um, and, and it is a challenge as far as computing power goes. Um, 
because we're thinking, I apologize, I, I had mentioned 3 million, uh, I meant 3 million genetic variants, but certainly the numbers of subjects often is in the tens to hundreds of thousands. So if you think about that data set, we've got 10,000 patients and 3 million variants each. So it does require quite a bit of computing power. Um, and software is one issue, but the other issue it has been development of statistical tools. Because when you're dealing with numbers this large, the traditional p-value of 0 0.05 no longer holds because your multiple testing problem is enormous. Uh, so a lot of the rate limiting factors in, in kind of our knowledge and our anal analysis of genomics comes from the need to develop new statistical approaches to to do this and the computing power to handle such large data. So moving on, I understand that the role of genomics in pulmonary rehab and exercise training is an emerging area of interest for researchers interested in this field. Could you tell us a little bit about this, please? Absolutely. So we know that COPD has a genetic contribution. We know that genes play a role in COPD development, and we're just learning about uh, the role of genes in various manifestations of COPD, like exacerbations. So on the other side, we also know that exercise capacity is also heritable, meaning it also has a genetic component. What we haven't done yet is looked at the intersection of the two because most of the studies in diseases have been focused on disease status. And it's just now that the large cohorts that are used in these omics studies have started collecting really good exercise data. But I think that it's an important area and it's definitely something that we are starting to look at. Um, one of the early phenotypes we're looking at right now is six-minute walk distance, which is a poor man's surrogate for exercise capacity, um, and really looking at the genetic variants that contribute to that. So that's one area we're looking at. Interesting. And so when you mentioned that COPD has a genetic contribution and exercise capacity is also heritable, do you mean that perhaps genomics could explain why somebody with a similar uh, disease severity in COPD has different levels of exercise capacity, so some person uh, may be more fit compared to someone who's less fit despite the same disease severity. Absolutely, and I think you've really hit the, the nail on the head with that summary. It's that among individuals with the same amount of airflow obstruction, so they have similar FEV1s, there's a remarkable distribution of exercise capacity and in disease manifestations. Um, and so we're hoping to understand more about who has preserved exercise capacity in COPD, and even perhaps a more important question is whose exercise capacity is trainable or modifiable even. That's fascinating. And what about in other diseases? So are there any in data on the interaction between genomics and rehab in other chronic respiratory diseases? I think because COPD is one of the larger, or I should say, more prevalent diseases, um, that research in the exercise capacity of COPD is probably more advanced than in, let's say, um, looking at rehabilitation in smaller populations, such as um, IPF or 
uh, pulmonary hypertension yet just because the number of patients in those disease areas is relatively smaller when compared to COPD. So I suspect we will expand our research to include those groups with, sorry, to include those respiratory diseases, but I think COPD just by the sheer numbers is what's going to uh, blaze the trail. In the clinical setting, how do you envisage the future role of genomics in pulmonary rehab? That's a terrific question. So I think the we have two goals, I think, really, with genetics and genomics. The first goal would really to be to be able to risk stratify patients, to really identify patients who have various markers um, as being at either either higher risk or as being more responsive to a certain type of treatment. Um, An example is that right now I have a study looking at the epigenetics of rehab training, various degrees of intensity of physical training in COPD patients. Uh, I want to see if there are any changes in their epigenetics that predict their response to high-intensity versus low-intensity training. And if so, then we could, you could imagine creating a tailored rehabilitation program for individuals that were more likely to be responsive. The second role I really envision for the future of genomics and uh, pulmonary and rehab is to really identify targets that not just the individuals, but to identify targets or medications uh, that we can use to really optimize and personalize the treatment of each individual. This could be drugs. It could be, like I mentioned, specific exercise prescriptions. It could be any number of things. There, We don't know what we'll find. <laughs> so really, risk stratification and identifying uh, new strategies to treat. That sounds, that sounds absolutely amazing uh, to be able to offer somebody a whole management program that's individualized to them. How realistic do you think that is to deliver or will that be to deliver? Um, Previously, we've talked about that you use blood samples to um, analyze genomic information. And so do you think this would be a routine part of a person's management that could be filtered down to all the different healthcare professionals that are uh, looking after the patient? That's a great question, too. Um, I think ideally that would be something as simple as a blood test where it came back saying uh, this person will respond to intensive exercise training and this particular inhaler, that that would be uh, the dream. <laughs> the, reality, <laughs> the reality may be that it comes in a little more piecemeal. For, for example, we discover one locus that you know is exercise responsive, and then it may be several years before we figure out what what factors contribute to that. Um, but certainly in the future, it could. that would be the goal, would be to have a simple, easy point of care, easily interpretable tool that would help manage the patient on an individual level. So, but I do think we are a couple years, many years off. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that's probably uh, one of the most positive statements I've heard about chronic disease management or chronic respiratory disease management. So I think we might uh, leave our discussion at that because I wouldn't want to carry on and not finish on such a high. 
So thank you very much, Dr. Wan. Uh, thank you for your insight, for your expertise and your time. And thank you also to our listeners. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and goodbye until the next podcast.